You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 234 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am. Mm. Uh, let's see. I have to think about this question now because, you know, because there's a lot more sort of importance on it these days because <laughs> how are you, Al, is apparently becoming one of our one of our things. That's um, right. Uh, look, you know, I'm I'm on the fair to middling end of the scale as usual. <laughs> no, you can't be fair to middling because today I'm fair to middling because I have a cold. Oh, so, so I think, but I I actually think even with a cold, buoyant. you are less fair to middling than I am. <laughs> I'm on my best days. <laughs> okay, well, I'm, okay, I so to, I need to be perky. Is that what yes, you're saying? Yes, exactly, because we've got to balance each other out. And, you know, I'm okay. fair to middling today. You can't always have it. What? But it's my thing. It's the rule. I'm going to get a T-shirt with yeah. fair to middling on it. That's a good <laughs> idea, actually. What have you been up to anyway in your sort of fair to middling state? Uh, what have I been up to? Um, pretty much the same as last week. I have been writing. I have been ferrying my children all over town. I've been um, in meetings for the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers oh, yes. Festival. I have been... You know, yeah, just all of those things. I was thinking about this today, actually, as Procrasty Pop and I were wandering the streets. I was thinking about the fact that you just, <laughs> as you do, yeah. um, you get to a point in the year where you're sort of like the, the beginning, I, I think we can safely say the beginning is over now, right? Mm. So we're into May and we're into the second term of school and as any parent will know, the second, sort of halfway between the half of the second term and the th- half of the third term are like the longest it's like the longest period in the history of the world. It's yes. like entire continents have been built <laughs> in less time than it takes you to get through term three of high school, let me tell you. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of in that period and it's just like it's just we, – we, it's just the routine. It's routine. We're doing routines. However – Yes. It's not all routine because um, I'm going to be going to the Kids and YA Festival. In fact, I'm on the program. Oh, yes. And that program has just dropped today. Um, very exciting. Which is very, very exciting. It's the New South Wales Writers' Centre Kids and YA Festival 2018 and I am going to be chairing a panel on the business of being a writer. The business of being a writer. Cool. Mm. What would I'm looking you, forward to it. What would you say your top three tips are on the business of being a writer? I don't know. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> 
ask me after I've done the panel. I haven't oh, really wow. given it to given it. I have to talk to all my people. You know how it is when yes. you share something. You've got to line everybody up and you have to um, get an idea of what everybody's sort of agenda is and how you're going to make sure all those agendas mesh and how it all comes out in the wash. So, yeah, so talk to me afterwards and would we'll have a long Would you rather chair or would you rather be on the panel? Um, do you know I often end up chairing? It's an interesting thing. Right. I, as far as the panels that I've done, um, I think I've been on one. No, I've been on two because one, in the sense of being a panel member twice, one yeah. of them was chaired by you. That was fun. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of them was chaired by the lovely Walter Mason, who we are going to talk about a little bit oh, later yes. on. Um, but all every other panel that I have ever done, I have actually been in charge of, which I think just comes back to the fact that people know that I can ask questions. Yeah. Do you think? Yes, I think and so. Kind of that keep makes things sense moving well. along. Yeah, because yeah. it does take quite some skill to chair effectively, where that mm. where you can keep things on track, you can keep things equitable, so that you know not just one person is saying the same thing. I'm mean, not. The, it's just saying most of the things, and mm. that you can throw to the appropriate person to give the best answer. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, and yeah, I've been on a panel as well that Walter uh, chaired, and. Um, He's excellent at it and uh, I think that it's, it is quite the skill so people should pick their chairs with care, I would mm, say. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, that should be fun. That should be fun. But let what about us, you? Oh. What about you? You have to tell us what you're doing. I know you have a cold. Oh, I have a cold. And it's because you haven't slept haven't since slept about enough. 2012, About I think. then, yeah. Yeah, mm. maybe 2002 even. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That is so true. I bring it on myself. It's my own fault. I know I need to rectify such things. So, yes. But what have I been up to? Well, I had hoped to get my teeth stuck into a manuscript that I'm editing probably by a few days ago, but, well, I couldn't because I was in bed with a cold. Mm. Um, So I'm hoping my head clears very soon because um, I'm really keen to get stuck into this manuscript actually. should be fun. And what else have I been up to? Gosh, I've you know what? Because I'm fair to middling today. My, my mind is a bit of a fog, so you'll have to forgive me if I'm okay. not very – clued up on my own answers about my own life. (laughs) All right. Well, how about we just move on and you can go to your next job, which is to do the next bit. Well, we want to give a shout out to Chelsea Engel from the USA. Welcome to the podcast, Chelsea from the USA. And thank you so much for leaving us a review on iTunes. Chelsea has titled it, Great Advice, Great Hosts, Great Interviews. We Mm. love people listening from the USA. So if you're listening from North America or in fact any part part of the world, thank you for tuning in. We think it's awesome. So Chelsea said, I never log into iTunes, but I knew I had to so I could leave a review. I've been listening to this podcast since I finally started working on my first novel this past December. Thanks to Val and Al, I finished the dreaded first draft already. Yay, Chelsea. Cue the cheering and the parades. Exactly. Chelsea continues, I love podcasts with and anything really with women voices, which is another reason I'm so happy I found So You Want to Be a Writer. I love their vibes together. They always have me laughing out loud on my way to work. Val's word of the week, Al, are you ready? <laughs> 
and their writer in residence interviews. I learned such a variety of things in each episode and I love start starting my mornings off with how are you, Al? Oh. <laughs> See what I mean? The pressure. It's not too much for me. I feel like I know these two amazing people because I've listened to every episode already and I can't wait for more. Oh, my goodness, Chelsea. Wow. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave us that review. You've made our day. Seriously. That is and we're so, so cool. happy to be hanging out with you in the US. I think it's so Absolutely. weird, isn't it? That Absolutely. People are listening to us. It's quite an intimate way to listen to people podcasting, yes. I think. And it's kind of strange to think that we're in someone's car or in someone's yes. headphones in the US. <laughs> in, you know, Wisconsin or South Dakota or somewhere that's so cool thank you chelsea i hope you're in the podcast group and make sure you introduce yourself and let us know which part of the u.s you are from we'd love to connect with you so if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on itunes we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings and also if you do want to join the podcast group just search for so you want to be a writer podcast community and request to join we'd love to have you in there so we spoke briefly about uh, the lovely Walter Mason and you have a link from Walter's blog for us to discuss, haven't you, uh, I Al? do. And Walter's blog is at waltermason.com. And yes. um, I, I bring it up because um, Walter, uh, he's like the king of the chairs. So he yes. is the man who facilitates a chair, yes, facilitates a panel um, with more sort of smooth moves than anyone I've ever seen. I remember uh, one of the things that stands out to me, it was so funny. We were doing a panel on writers and social media and it was at um, Sydney Writers Festival a couple of years ago. Right. And he was sitting, it was the first time I'd met him and we we're all sitting there on our in our panel, you know, there's about 200 people in the room, we're all very nervous and uh, except him. And he's sitting there and he starts chatting away and the next thing he's telling the whole audience about how he discovered this fantastic tip, how you could use avocado, like when you when you use up your avocado and you've got the, um, you've still got the skins, you know, with that bit of avocado in the, in, the, in it, left in it that you haven't yeah. quite managed to scrape out. You put them on your elbows Ooh. and it makes your elbows really smooth. <laughs> really? Yeah, this is where we started. So you can imagine the entire panel was hilarious. We had the best time and there was so much discussion. And um, <laughs> But he just makes everybody feel at ease. Anyway, yes. so part of this is because he gives an awful lot of talks. So not just yes. chairing panels, but he, he's like the king of public talks as well, author talks. And he wrote this terrific little post called How to Give a Bad Talk in which he basically tells you what not to do um, and then tells you what to do instead um, when it comes to an author talk. Now, um, I thought it was a quite a timely one because there have been quite a few questions, you know, in our uh, podcast community and via various forms that we get um, of people wanting to know more about author talks and also about school talks. Um, mm -hmm. So Walters is very specifically about sort of, you know, author talks, library talks, you know, um, and, and bookshop talks and that sort of stuff. And he has this great list of, uh, of points, 10 points, I believe. Yes, yes. 10 points on how to give the perfect bad talk. Um, and number one is to make political points when you are talking about an unrelated subject. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like I'm thinking, you know, all writers have strong opinions. You don't yeah. sort of tend to write unless you've got a lot of thoughts going on in your head, but you have to really seriously think about whether this is the place to bring them out. Yeah. Um, as he points out, 50% of the audience 
evidence completely disagrees with you. Yeah. So are you so good that you can afford to lose 50% of your audience? Yes. Um, and he's also someone who goes to a lot of author talks, a lot of, you know, um, um, speaking events. And his point is that this is actually happening a lot lately. Like, you know, obviously we're in a very politicised climate at yes. the moment, but your author talk is not the place to necessarily bring it out, even if it's a joke, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like it's, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, joke worthy things occurring in the world. <laughs> I yes. understand. I, f- I feel your pain. Um, but you know, your author talk is not the place to actually discuss them because there people will disagree with you. I'm sorry. You only have to look at anything that anyone says on Facebook to see that within the first three comments, there will be someone that really wants to take them to task over it. So think about that. Um, And and he says, people came to hear about the lives of saints or an account of your journey through the Greek Isles. They really (laughs) don't want to know how you intend to vote. So, yeah. Now, the second point which made me laugh was – of, of, you know, how to give a bad author talk is to say, but I won't tell you more because I want you to buy the book. Yes. And as he points out, the last time this line was funny was 1948. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so nobody true. wants to feel obviously manipulated and they don't want to believe that the whole reason you're there is to sell books. It may well be the yes. only reason that you've dragged yourself out on a rainy Wednesday night to a small library in the back of, you know, Western Sydney, potentially, yeah. that is why you are there. But the audience has come to see you and they yeah. they believe, they want to believe that you are there to see them. So, you know, it's you can't sort of rudely just say, I'm going to give you the first paragraph and here's a cliffhanger and et cetera. Mm. I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to give it away, but you don't have to say the line is, is Walter's point. And I think it's a very, very valid and good point. Um, now the other, he has a, there's a couple of other great points, you know, don't talk about anybody else on stage. Don't talk about other authors. Don't talk about other speakers. No, don't talk badly about. About slamming them. I'm talking about, sorry. I I meant to say bad talk them. Yeah. Don't, you know, like you just don't, it's just not, it doesn't need to be done. Like if you've got, if you don't have, it's the, it's the old, if you've got nothing nice to say, say nothing. Exactly which extends to all manner of things, um, but most assuredly to talking in public about somebody else. Um, uh, Walter also talks about the importance of having visuals. Now, I'm not necessarily – I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think you necessarily need to have a PowerPoint presentation or whatever every time you go, but you do need a few things. Like you take some copies of your books with you. Um, I mean, he says there's no exceptions, you know, don't be afraid of technology. But I have seen very good authors who, who you know, manage to speak for an hour without – with no visuals and still maintain the audience's interest. So I think it's um, it's one of those things of where you've got to have a lot of confidence to not have your images with you. Um, and if you do have images, then you realise that people, um, you know, it gives up people something else to think about, which is not such a bad thing. If I you're doing school I'm in the talks, middle on you that definitely one. need a visual. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. I think I'm in the middle of that one in that if you're going to have visuals, make sure they're good. If they're not good, don't have visuals at all. Mm. Mm. Yes, I agree. 
I mean, knocking up a PowerPoint, anyone can do it, but you have to think very carefully about whether you want yours to look like a year 12 assignment or exactly. actually, do you know what? Year 12 assignments look a lot better than mine. So let's say a year six assignment, which yes. is probably about where I'm up to, um, which is why I get someone else to do them for me. I, I will confess, my sister is an extremely, she's got a great eye for presentations right. and graphics. And so I send her through a list of, you know, what I want and the text that needs to go on them and she puts the PowerPoint slides together for me. So, oh, you know, wow. get yourself a your handy sister. sister. I know, she's awesome. Big shout out to Bron. Hi, Bron. Maxabella. Actually, go see her new website. It's called mumlife, M-U-M-L-Y-F-E.com, oh. .au, and you will see just how nice her visuals are. We will um, put that link in the show notes. Yes, good idea. So you can see our sister in all her glory. Um, now, what else have we got? Um, oh, this is my one of my personal favourites. Point 10, don't have a plan B. So this is how to give a bad talk, don't have a plan B. Now, if you turn up to a, uh, a talk and you've got your beautifully developed PowerPoint presentation designed by Maxabella on your Apple laptop and you don't have it on a backup USB, you are in big trouble because the chances are that your beautiful Apple laptop is not going to plug in to the <laughs> technology at the library and so therefore your beautifully designed PowerPoint yeah. preso will be seen by nobody and you are going to be standing there going, I really need that visual to go with this talk because otherwise it's lost. So have a plan B. Think about how you're going to do this. So if you're going to take your laptop with you, double check to make sure that they can um, that they can use that. But I always have it on a stick yes. and I have it not only in PowerPoint presentation um, format, but I also have it saved as a PDF. Yes. Because if the fonts don't work, I can just go to the PDF and flick through that instead. So think about how things are all going to play out. And these are the kinds of things that you do learn when you get caught out. So I am trying to save you from being caught out. But seriously, have a look at Walter and his blog um, and his and his post about, you know, how to avoid giving or how to give a bad talk and thereby avoid giving a bad talk. um, Definitely worth a look. Awesome. WalterMason.com. Again, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. Um, but let's re- let's cycle back, Al, to oh, the um, festival that you be- you'll be talking at because that's always great fun. Um, yes. In terms of your chairing, what's your panel on again? The Business of Writing. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Oh, I need to right. look further into so it. So would the Business um, of Writing be actually, you know, like about money and about – No, it's – well, it's the- about it's about making a career out of writing. It's about um, – oh. and I'm talking to – I'm talking to Kate Forsyth, um, I'm talking to Garth Nix, and I'm talking to Louise Park. So three authors who all have long careers in slightly different ways – um, and and we're going to be discussing how to because you know they also um, they also have a lot of books between them. They've been yeah. writing for a long time. They've been published for a long time. So it's going to be about that. It's going to be about how to keep yourself, um, you know, as a as, it's a long term career as an author. It's about that. And by the time you wrote your most recent book, by the time you wrote the book of answers from yes. the Adaban Cipher series, which yes. is your what sixth novel? It's my sixth novel for children. Yeah, yeah, sixth novel for children. What do you think? Because presumably, after every book, you learn something new about the business of writing. Obviously, you learn st- something new about the craft of writing that just happens. Yeah. 
What do you think you learned about the business of writing after your sixth book that you that came as a result of that experience? I think what having six books out teaches you is that the writing of the books, while difficult, is in many ways not the most difficult part of of maintaining a writing career mm. because I think what happens is that you realise that you um, you start to back yourself in that there will always be another idea, that the ideas will be there. And I do have many ideas. I mean, we've been talking about this over the last couple of months, um, you know, the different manuscripts I've been working on. I've had two on submission. I'm, I'm waiting to hear back on different things. Um, it's, it's about more growing the career of what your next idea should be in that sense of how am I going to continue this career tra trajectory? Do I continue in the same way with more of the same? Do I branch out slightly so that I have a twofold sort of um, uh, path in my career? So perhaps I start writing something slightly younger and I think about perhaps another A.L. Tate um, a, a sort of style adventure story. Is A.L. Tate, you know, where I'm going to stay. I mean, is A.L. Tate going to, you know, is, is A.L. Tate sort of fantasy? Because A.L. Tate is quite branded as fantasy mm. adventure. Mm. So then I have to think about, well, if I do go down a slightly different path, is that A.L. Tate or is that going to be something, um, is that going to be Alison Tate? Is that going to be something different again? Mm. So you, there's a lot of decisions that you have to kind of make. And you obviously you make them not only yourself by having a look at the ideas that you have and cherry picking the ones that you think are the strongest and the ones that really, and then the ones that you are passionate about actually writing. I mean, I just don't think that committing to something that, that you think is going to be um, just something that you can do for the next couple of years, because it kind of fits in with the, with the um, career sort of idea that you had, you, it's not going to work out for you. Like I, I couldn't commit to another series that I was lukewarm about, you know, just because it happened to be in the same area as AL Tate. So the mm. idea has to be strong enough to go um, to, to keep me interested, even if it's just a standalone, because a standalone takes a year, like, you know, let alone yeah. um, anything else. So, you know, like it's, it's a matter of like what's the next idea going to be? What am I going to work on? Sometimes for me that means writing a couple of manuscripts because, you know, we've talked before about how I need to, see it to know exactly what it is. I need to write it to know exactly what it is. So sometimes it's that. Um, and I don't consider those things to be wasted. People go, oh, you waste so much time. But mm. for me, the joy of the writing is is why I do it. Yep. So the joy of getting those words out on page is, is what it's all about. And then I look at them and I go, maybe not now. Maybe that's something that needs to go aside for a little while while I work on X. Or maybe I'm going to try um, – and take that particular idea, um, maybe that idea is not not an Australia-based idea. Maybe that idea actually needs, mm. I need to try and pitch that into the US. So maybe I need to think about doing that. So um, you're constantly making decisions. And obviously, if you have an agent, then those are the kinds of decisions that an agent can help you make. And you will, you will sort of work with an agent on those things. I don't have an agent at the moment. So that's something that I'm also thinking about. Do I need an agent? If that, if I get an agent, will it be a US agent? Mm. Um, you know, will I get a US agent? You know, like this, there's just so many, um, so many different sort of things that come a part of it. Um, which is why it's always great to go along to a panel like the one that I'm going to um, be chairing hmm. to look at the different paths that people have taken and how, yeah. they, how their careers have developed and what decisions they've made along the way. Like Kate Forsyth, for example, you know, started out in really like hardcore fantasy. She's come hmm. into, she's gone into kids and now she's doing 
um, you know, the sort of, well, historical, but also, you know, fairy tale retelling kind of idea. Like she's got a Mm. very strong brand in that. Um, So, you know, Garth Nix is obviously very much um, a fantasy author. He writes across a whole range of different genres. Louise Park, we interviewed for the podcast a few years ago and uh, years ago, was it a year, last year, (laughs) year before? Could be. Um, But she writes, she develops series fiction, specifically chapter books, and she looks She's very business, like it's very much what's not on the bookshelf. What am I looking at? What niche do I need to fill? Um, so she takes a quite different approach again. So I think it will be um, a really, really interesting uh, panel. And, of course, you know, this. I guess the stuff that I bring to it as well from a business perspective is just the journalism background, the how you go about actually getting your books out there, the, the you know, the platform stuff that I, you know, obviously have the course uh, with at the Australian Writers' Centre, all of those things. Um, are things that I've learned over many, many years of being a professional writer. I have written, you know, I've been writing, I've been, you know, writing has been my job since I was 19, Mm. just in lots of different ways. And I think that um, that aspect of it too, of how, you know, you don't necessarily have to be sitting down working only on a novel to be a working writer. So, you know, it's it's that diversification of your writing skills and where you use them and how you use them as well. Mm. And, of course, the course that uh, Alison referred to about platform is the course that she's created called Build Your Author Platform uh, at the Australian Writers' Centre. And it's a self-paced course that you can check out and just go to writerscentre.com.au slash platform. Now, I have a tip for you, Al, because (laughs) Dean, you and I, I both know Dean. His children have very recently read the Book of Answers and if they had their way, because they loved it, and if they had their way, they would want something from A.L. Tate coming out soon. So, oh, bless. Yes. That's sure. always so great to hear. And just in case well, anyone – I am working on some, AL, some new AL Tate ideas, so let's I'll wait tell and see them. what, I'll what tell happens them. next. And just in case there are some new listeners, just very briefly, what's the Book of Answers about? Well, the Book of Answers is the sequel to the Book of Secrets, um, and they are both branded as Adaban Cipher novels, um, and they are about a mysterious medi- uh, medieval-style coded manuscript. They are ab- about a boy who grew up in a monastery who escapes from the monastery with this mysterious book under his arm, and that's, this mysterious book is something that is wanted by a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons and it is up to Gabe our hero with his band of friendly girls to uh to keep it safe and so this huge quest you know is undertaken to keep this book safe and out of enemy hands um and it's very exciting I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed writing it and I enjoyed coming up with a solution to it mm. why would you write a book that no one can read yeah mm. awesome mm. And of course the answers are in the book of answers they All are right. Let's move on to our giveaway this week. This is really cool. We have three copies of the book, Bridge Burning and Other Hobbies by Kitty Flanagan. So one of Australia's favourite and most multi-talented entertainers, Kitty Flanagan provides hilarious and honest life advice in this candid collection of cautionary tales. In these funny true stories, Kitty provides advice you didn't even know you needed, useful tips on how not to get murdered while hitchhiking, how to break up with someone the wrong way and the right way, why it's important (laughs) to keep your top on while waitressing, and why women between the ages of 37 and 42 should be banned from internet dating. 
Burning, sorry, Bridge Burning and Other Hobbies is a collection of laugh out loud cautionary tales from one of Australia's favourite comedians. And I have to say, I absolutely love Kitty Flanagan in Utopia. The character she plays as the PR communications person is so spot on, it's, it's scary. And I also recently saw her doing stand-up uh, in Sydney and she is quite hilarious. So uh, there are three copies to give away. And you just need to enter the competition at writerscentercomau slash win and entries close on the 28th of May. So remember, writerscentercomau slash win. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there'll be another competition that's also awesome for, for you to enter there as well. Now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? <laughs> <laughs> How could I not be ready? I feel, I feel like we need to do a poll on this of those who adore the word of the week and those who are on Team Al. Well, that's just like you mean you don't adore it? <laughs> what? Of course, I I love it, Val. <laughs> I just I just love it. It's well, my favorite, it's no my longer, favorite moment of the week. It really exactly, is. Exactly, because I'm no longer fair to middling because this is an exciting part of the week for me. The word Ooh. of the week this week is Timesis. Oh. Huh, Timesis. That's T-M-E-S-I-S. T-M-E-S-I-S. Timesis. Cool, right? This is really, I really like this word. This one is used a lot in everyday speech, but most probably didn't know that there's a name for it. Timesis is the separation of words, usually a compound word, to insert other elements into it. Macquarie Dictionary lists an example as Kanga Bloody Roo. But for those Sex and the City fans, they may remember that a very, very iconic saying by Mr. Big, I won't say the whole saying because I'd have to be beeped out, but he would often say, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That is Timesis. Right. Yeah. Um, the word comes from the Greek for cutting. So like you're cutting the word up. Absolutely. Cool, huh? Very cool. So cool. So I know. I'm excited. I think to me this sounds like one of those it, it kind of sounds like a net like it could be a like, you know, a cutting edge, quirky, unique name. Oh. Tamisa Smith. Oh, right. No. Could be, yeah. Like unique. a new hipster name. Yeah. yeah. Could Don't be. This is my daughter, Tamesis. Yeah, but it's not. Okay. So, who <laughs> okay. is our writer in residence this week, Al? Ah, well, this week we're actually revisiting, which is a little bit fun. We are revisiting the lovely Dr. Anita Heiss. Oh, um, yes. And the reason that we are revisiting Dr. Anita Heiss is because we spoke to her all the way back 230 episodes, episodes ago. Wow. And let's face it, like how much time has gone under the bridge since then. But the reason that I just knew that I had to speak to her right now, because she has actually had several books come out in that time, is that she has just edited a new anthology um, called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia that really caught my interest because I, you know, I think it's a, a really timely book and I also thought, terrific, this is someone that I can pin down and talk to about how to put an anthology together. Like, what are you actually doing when you're editing an anthology? What are you looking for? How do you choose the stories? How can people best 
create a story for an anthology if they want something, you know, if they're, if they're, if that's the kind of, you know, way that they want to go with their um, author careers. So I, I, you know, cornered her and sat her down and asked her all of those questions because I just like to know, you know I like to know, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So here's Dr. Anita Heiss. Dr. Anita Heiss is the author of nonfiction, historical fiction, commercial women's fiction, poetry, social commentary, travel articles, and children's fiction. She is a regular guest at writers' festivals and travels internationally performing her work and lecturing on Indigenous literature. She is a lifetime ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and a proud member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales. Her latest book, of which she is the editor, is Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, and it's out now. And welcome back to the program. Dr. Anita Heiss. Thank you for having me. This is actually your second interview with So You Want to Be a Writer. We spoke to you all the way back in episode three, which is about 100 years ago, I think. Um, but let's, so let's just recap a little bit for, for new listeners. Can you tell us, first of all, like how you came to be a published author in the first place? So I published my first book back in 1996. It was called Sacred Cows and it was born out of my time at university where everything I got off the shelf at the University of New South Wales during my undergrad degree related to anything to do with Aboriginal people, society, culture and so forth was written by a non-Aboriginal person uh, except for some work by Kevin Gilbert and, and Ujira Noonuckle. And I decided that I wanted to write um, a satirical social commentary, basically being the you know the Aboriginal anthropological observer's gaze into white Australia. So I looked at Skippy and Vegemite and the backyard barbecue and so forth. And I had no idea back then that my journey as a writer would be what it is today. I had never I didn't have any aspirations of writing more than that one book, but it turned out it was the springboard to me going and learning about. Uh, the publishing process in Australia, uh, Indigenous publishing process in Australia, but also the Māori writing and editing publishing process in Aotearoa and New Zealand and Native American uh, writing publishing culture in Canada. And I did my PhD, which was then uh, published as Gluyella, which means which is a Wiradjuri phrase meaning to talk straight. And then it sort of snowballed from there and I was asked to write a kid's novel for Scholastic on the Stolen Generations and, and here I am, I think maybe 16 or 17 books later. I was going to say you have, you know, you are quite prolific. Like for someone who actually, you know, does a, a thousand different things, you are actually pulling out, uh, you know, quite a lot of books as well. Since we last spoke, um, you've actually brought out several new books across different age groups and genres. One of those was Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, which is obviously an adult book. And then you've also had Kicking Goals and Our Race for Reconciliation for Children. Do you do you find mm-hmm. it difficult to kind of switch age groups and genres? Like you, you seem to be working in a whole range of different areas across the publishing, you know, spectrum. Um, it, it's a good question. I, well, for me, every book has a, a specific purpose and a target audience. So some of those books I was asked to write. So, um, you know, I wrote to a brief and so forth. The children's novels, I really, really enjoy writing. And I don't know, to be honest, I don't know why I don't do more of them because they are in some ways much easier to write um 
and, and, and very enjoyable because I'm writing about, you know, young people having fun and fishing and skateboarding and so forth, even though there's issues woven in there. Um, and, you know, obviously writing 10,000 words or 40,000 words is much easier than writing 80 or 90 or 100. Um, and look, to be honest with you, I really, I really would like to just find one genre that I can do exceptionally well, really, really well. So, you know, I've written, as you say, historical fiction, kids' fiction and commercial fiction and and they do, and you know I enjoy it and they do well and I get good reader response but I think it would be wonderful just to say this is my thing so I don't know that I have a thing what would it take I don't do you know think, that I have for you to find your thing like in the sense of what do you think it would take for know. you to go oh so this is it this is my thing this is what I need to be doing I don't, I don't know um I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, people judge their own personal success in so many different ways, I guess. And so whether it's through numbers of books sold or being reviewed in the New York, you know, literary review, you know, whatever, um, I guess I, my measure of success, and I should listen to myself as I say this out loud to you, is that... Um, uh, when when I go into communities in particular and they say, oh, that was my story or thank you for telling our story and so forth. And, I mean, we're going to talk about it shortly, but even with the new anthology, I mean, I didn't write so much of that as pull it together, mm. but the impact that that is having is extraordinary. So maybe my thing then is actually providing that space for other people to have voices. But having said that, editing any... Any literary project is so much harder than writing your own book because you are, you know, dealing with in that case fifty-two different people, and and it's it's really really a hard thing because everybody has their own deadlines, and when you're working for writing your own book, you are just working to your own deadline, and and you know obviously your publisher and so forth. Well, that interesting because I, I did want to ask you. Obviously, we're going to talk about that. Um, the book is growing up Aboriginal in Australia, and you edited it, as you said. Where did the idea for this book come from? Like, was it your idea or were you approached to pull it together? Oh, I wished I was smart enough to have this idea. Uh, no, I was because I didn't know it was going to be such a fabulous outcome that we've had. No, so December 2016, I had already made a decision that um, last year was was my year off from writing and so forth. And um, But what happened was I got an email from Aviva Tuffield at Black Ink press and they said are you interested in, in, in editing this anthology they'd already done growing up asian in australia which had launched careers like ben law and was a huge success in the classroom uh, as a resource and i looked at it and i just thought there is no way that i can say no to this because it's not a project really it's an opportunity for many many aboriginal people to have a voice uh, in a space where we have long been voiceless it was an opportunity to showcase our skills as storytellers um, it was uh, an opportunity to have a springboard for talking about our pride and identity and so forth so i saw this more as as an opportunity for me to participate in, in something that could make real change, particularly in the classroom where the work is targeted. So it's targeted four years, nine to 12, but most of the response I've had to date has been just by your, your average punter and reader 
readers, you know, just librarians and teachers and people who are just interested because it's only been out a couple of weeks and um, hasn't had a chance to have an impact in the classroom yet. So what is the role, uh, what is your role, like as an editor of something like this? Like what's your job? How does it, you know, as far as, you know, they said, would you like to edit this? You know, did you know what you were taking on, A, and B, what exactly did you take on? What were you doing? Well, it's interesting because, you know, obviously editing as the skill of editing mm. is, is a particular, it's very different to being a writer. Mm. I and mean, there's this running joke, if you can't write, you edit. Uh, I love going through the editing process myself when my work is edited so I can see how to improve it and so forth, And which is lots of authors don't like that process. I, um, I, my role, I didn't necessarily do all the, I didn't do the actual tangible editing on the page. Uh, as such, I went through the edits that Eva did. We talked about things. My job, I did, I read all the contributions that came in, all the submissions. There were over 120. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the hardest part of that whole process was not being able to include everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really difficult. Um, and we could only include 52 because of page constraints. And I will say that because I was so concerned about not everybody not having a platform, I had a meeting with Aviva, with Kerry Kilner from Auslit about the, what might be possible for Auslit to publish an online version for the works that could not go into the, our book. So every everybody who submitted who was unable to be put in the anthology had the opportunity to have their work published online uh, on Auslit in their Blackwoods research community so they're now online as well those people chose to do that and that will grow and that's called growing up indigenous um so my job was to read and cull and and look for you know and when i was pulling it all together how do we how do we um pitch this to a a general reading audience how do we pitch this to teachers so they know that they can use this in the classroom so I was looking for common themes I was that I could talk about and they were themes of largely around identity Mm -hmm. uh, stereotypes around identity how Aboriginal people identify themselves challenges to identity and so forth Um, lots of obsession with um, well white people's obsession with skin Mm colour comes through the stories there was a lot of uh, story, a lot of common um, themes around racism, particularly in the education system, which is quite sad, and and also the fact that there were generations of um, racism that hadn't seemed to have changed till present day, and uh, common themes around stolen generations, family. Country in connection to country, and there's also a bit of sport in there. Uh, the interesting thing for me as an editor reading was the diversity of voice and the way stories were told, uh, are told, and for your listeners so they understand the the, the breadth of experience. Our youngest uh, contributor is 13. It's a young girl in in west of Sydney. Our oldest is in the 70s up here in Queensland. One one contributor contributor is currently incarcerated and he was assisted with um, someone, uh, a, a local Aboriginal writer in, in South Australia who helped him get his story together. Um, and over 50% of the anthology are uh, by female contributors. Now, I wasn't looking at all these statistics. All that was, we worked all that out once everything was compiled and we're literally going to print. So that, and, you know, review has pointed out some things to me in terms of the, the gender balance. So 
Um, I, the one thing I was hoping to do when reading stories was to try and have a good cross-section of, um, you know, rural, remote, coastal, urban, uh, and as many countries as possible, but that didn't define whether or not someone got chosen because there are, I think, three contributors who are Gundajamara, for instance, because their stories were very, very strong and, um, you know, they stood out. Oh. Yeah, because that was kind of one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, how do you choose these stories? Like, particularly, you know, given that it was a submission process and you got, you know, twice as many as you needed, um, I would imagine that the most difficult thing would be deciding who to leave out rather than necessarily who yeah. to put in. Um, yeah. What do you think actually makes a successful anthology story? Like for people out there who are who are writing um, and who you know may have an opportunity to to um, you know to submit to something like this because you know there are call outs for different things that that go on. But what what makes it work for an anthology? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think it, 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 I think people need to understand that regardless of the theme of the anthology, whether it's an Aboriginal anthology or a theme for or women's writing or the environment or whatever it is, there still has to be a level of skill in the way the story is told. Mm. So people weren't chosen um, just because they were black, for instance. Obviously, they couldn't be because there were so many to choose from. Mm. So. You know, when I'm reading, if, if it's the story is well written, and it, it's a, you know that's that puts them in front of someone's story who's who's it's not well written. And in the in publishing today, um, obviously there's so much competition. I know in, in editors get things on their desks all the time. They are looking for things that are almost close to publication, unless it's unless it's an extraordinary story. And so I think what was you know with. With our stories, there is a need to provide extra assistance for particularly older people who haven't had access to the education that younger people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so there was there were some stories that required quite a lot of editing, and there were other stories by people like Tony Burge that required virtually nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's a writer. I do need you to know that we did uh, we did actually approach there were people to submit. So there were people that we did commission to write. So Tony Burge and um, I believe Jared Thomas yeah. and Terry Janke, yeah. Miranda Tapsell. Um, so people we knew who could already weave a story together, yeah. had a story, could weave it together. And, and the idea was that they, that emerging writers could stand alongside these established writers. So I think if, if, if your listeners are, are submitting to an anthology, stick to the brief. Mm. You know, so we said non-fiction people send us fiction and poetry. That was not the brief. So stick to the brief, stick to the word count because, you know, we need you, you, the editor, the publisher, they need to know that you can, you know, tell your story in 3,000 words. Mm. So stick to the word count. Um, and if each sentence should progress the story in some way. Right. And as a tip, just as a writing, oh, I'll save that for my writing tips, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I would give it away too soon. Don't want to peak early, no. <laughs> Don't want to peak, that's right. But it's true, isn't it? Because you, you want to give your story the best possible chance. So you at least tick all the boxes and follow the rules and then you jump off from yep. there. That, that Would that be your yep. um, your advice as far as the anthology stories go? Well, it's, a really, it's really basic though. And I tell say that because so many people don't, just submit something having because they want to submit their story, mm. but they haven't actually read what's required of them. And you know, you don't send, send it on fancy paper or anything. Just 
be 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 honest in your story. Be authentic. If it's not particularly if it's nonfiction, um, be authentic. And um, I mean, I'm always I'm I'm quite often conscious of audience, and all my writing is targeted to a particular audience. So be aware. Be aware of who you're writing for. Mm. If it's for young people, be conscious of the language. Be conscious of, and I don't mean profanities, but be conscious of. But be conscious of that as well, I guess. Mm. But be conscious of. Um, the lingo that young people use today. So be be aware of who the audience is that you're writing for. Did you find? I, so, and I say that. Can, can I just say? Because I say that because so many people go, "Oh, I don't. I just want to be organic, and I, I don't care who reads my work." And it's easy to say that, but if you actually want to be read, you should care. Yeah. You should care who you're writing for, yeah. and unless and if you don't want to be read, that's fine. But I don't know a lot of people, and um, particularly people listening to your podcast and going through the writers' centre, um, that um, aren't writing for the purpose of being read. Mm. So just you know, just be aware. I think of who you're writing for. Did you find so when you sort of like you decided you were going to take last year off, and then suddenly you're editing this book? Did you find that it was um, quite a consuming project for you? Did it take up a lot of your headspace and time oh absolutely so um so you do the read through usually twice so there's quite a few you know pieces of writing to read through then sitting down and trying to you know three piles absolutely yes maybe is an absolutely no and then there's the process of going through that and then having the conversation with uh the publisher to see that they'd had a read and to see whether or not um they agreed um, and not, not for, I mean, I had the last say, but to have a conversation obviously with somebody else around that, um, it is, it is, it's emotional because some of the material is very emotional. So that takes time to process mm. what you're reading as well. And there were things that shocked me um, that I read. Um, and also, you know, the book's out now and I'm, I, you know, it's, I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. And I always, I've always said, because I've done a number of anthologies, I'm never doing another <laughs> anthology because you can't, you can't please everybody. No. It's like being a ref at a football match. You can't please everybody. No. And just to, another tip for your listeners, you, you, you can submit something to an anthology and not be selected. We've all done that. I've been knocked back many, 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 many times. Um, and you need to understand that it's not necessarily your piece. It's, it's just how it, how it sits next to everybody else's piece mm. on the day. Mm. And it, it might not be right for that anthology, but it could be perfect for another anthology. And actually, Lisa Marie Siren, who's one of the um, contributors, she we did a panel at the Sydney Writers' Festival, and she was saying that she'd written this piece and, and had nowhere to place it. And then the call-out came, and then she virtually made no changes to it because it was this was the right place for that piece. Yeah. So keep looking around. There's loads of opportunities. So if it doesn't fit somewhere, you just wait for the right opportunity for your story to, to fit in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as well as, you know, writing all these books and doing a lot of speaking and all of the different things that you do, you also have a day job, right, because you are with the yes. Good Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with them? Sure. I am. I manage the the Good Foundation, which is a philanthropic um, national organisation, but based out of Brisbane, and uh, co-founded by Kathy Reid and Stuart Giles, who are local philanthropists and pharmacists by trade, and also co-founders of the Icon Cancer Group, which is the largest cancer care provider in the country. So they use their their skills and interest in the health sector to 
support a number of programs through their foundation, largely health-related. One of their key areas is the desire to close the gap, uh, gender equity in health and education. So they support the Hawthorne Indigenous Program, which does outreach, which involves literacy, which partners with the Indigenous Literacy Foundation as well, and they do literacy projects uh, as well as um, other educational projects and, and getting young people in remote communities to have access to um, things that in the city we take for granted, like libraries and so forth. Um, they also support Indigistream, which is an Indigenous production house that creates online health uh, documentaries. Mm. Um, also, big supporters of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation may have had my hand in, in that introduction. Um, but, yeah, so they're doing lots of good work. Traction, which is a local um, youth organisation here in Brisbane to, that supports young people who may not be thriving in school but can go and participate in, an, in a workshop on how to build bikes um, in a group atmosphere and that's counted as part of their school work as well. Okay. So that's not a small job that you're doing there. How do you manage to fit writing, editing, speaking, et cetera, all in around that? Oh, I'm not quite sure. I think you must have I don't a 26 know how I'm <laughs> No, I, I don't have a, I don't have a man and I don't have kids, so I've probably got a lot more hours than a lot of people. Um, and but I'm anal about schedules and organisation. I write. Um, uh, I'm quite structured in writing, so I haven't written for a little while now because I'm also studying. I'm, I've enrolled in to learn the Wiradjuri language at, at university. Um, but yeah, but when I'm so when I'm working on a project, when I'm working on a, a novel, for instance, so our race and reconciliation came out in May last year, and I wrote that. I think I wrote that over. a over about 28 days and I literally got up every morning and I worked, wrote for, you know, two or three hours, sometimes from five in the morning before I went to work. I prefer to write in the morning. I'm not a nighttime person. If it's not done by five, it doesn't get done. Um, and so I write in slabs of time. My adult novels like Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming, I wrote those in eight to 12 weeks, just every day living on Red Bull and chocolate. I was so unhealthy back then. <laughs> Wasn't running marathons, but I write in slabs of time and I'm, and I'm very structured. I'm a plotter, so I map everything out. Right. So by the time I sit down to start writing my novel, um, uh, I, know where, if I know where I'm going, I know where the story's going. Like, I've, got, I've got a plan okay. to work to. All right. And so, you, you, I mean, which is pretty much the only way to do it with when you're as busy as you are, right? You've got to basically, you've got to put the time aside. You've got to know exactly what you're going to do when you sit down and you've just got to get on with it. That's right. Okay. I mean, that's, I don't have time to, um, I, you know, I, I've tried to do the whole panster thing and I, just, I don't have time. I, I have to get a book out. I've got a deadline. This is the window of time I've got. Bang. Okay. Um, and as you said, you're actually still really working on um, on your latest book because you're promoting it everywhere. Like I've, you've been, your promotion schedule looks absolutely punishing for this. Do you do you take time off your day job to do that, or is it how do you how do you fit that stuff in with everything else? Well, uh, well there's a couple of things there. So my epic good is. Uh, part three days a week, oh. which is completely flexible. And Kathy and Stuart, being the entrepreneurs they are, they understand that I'm trying to uh, also be, you know, run a business as a writer. Yeah. And they are they support everything I do, so that which is great. Yeah. So if I have to go to like next year, I'm going to India for festivals. That's all. That's all fine. Yeah. So some weeks I work 
I might work eight days straight or ten days straight, and then I'll take a week off. Yeah. So we've got a big, got a big month coming up with reconciliation week and so forth, and our activities. And then I think I fly back to Sydney on a Saturday after speaking at the Wheeler Centre, and then I'll probably. I might even take Monday and Tuesday off and I'll go to a day spa and I'll do my washing oh. and pay my bills and <laughs> vacuum and do all, all those sort of things. Mm. Do you do um, – what kinds of promotional stuff do you do when you're not actively launching a book? Like are you online? Are you um, – I know that you have a blog and you've been posting a yes. happiness photo each day. Um, is, yes. is that – you know, like are you, are you sort of actively always trying to just sort of keep your website active and stuff like that? I yes, so I do. I'm on X amount of platforms. I'm on Twitter, so I have I think twenty two, twenty three thousand followers on Twitter. So I manage that account, and I also manage the Epic Good account. And I so I'm doing stuff daily there. Most of that is around. Um, it's book related, uh, book related, maybe some running and other indigenous and indigenous affairs. Um, I have an Instagram account, and most of that is really about um, living the best life I can. Is the hashtag I have and, and running um, and, and book events as well. And I have a personal Facebook page. I have an author page that was set up by a young student many years ago that I I now manage. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn, but. I use that less so because it's really, you know, I guess if I'm ever looking for another job, I'll be, I'll be on there like everybody else sending emails. But I think an online presence for any author is essential. And, and I think what people need to understand is it's not meant to be an, an information dump. It's social media. There's meant to be social engagement. And I, particularly if you're an organization that you need to understand that you need to engage with people who follow you and, and be sharing other people's information as well. Mm, very true. All right. We're going to finish up with the top three tips for writers that I know you've been thinking about for, you know, at least 20 okay. years now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So my first tip is you have to read. Um, I meet so many people who go, I'm going to, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book. And then they tell me they don't read. And I say, well, what, what makes you think somebody's going to be interested in your book if you can't be bothered reading somebody else's? That's one thing. But the idea is you need to be reading across genres. You need to be reading, reading across uh, gender and geography and cultures and to get a feel for how stories work on the page and how you think your, how you want you to tell your stories on the page um, and to know what's in the marketplace. Mm. To know what's in the marketplace. So I've recently pitched as something to publishers, and they said, "Well, we've sort of that's we've come out the other side of the tunnel for that topic, which was a bit sad for me." Mm. Um, but so know what's in the marketplace. Um, secondly, uh, if for writing, one of the greatest tips I was given by two people, and that was Linda Javen and Catherine Heyman, was to use your senses in your writing. Mm-hmm. So I, when I run writers' workshops now, I always have an exercise where I get the young people to, you know, whether even if you're looking around the classroom, how many different colours can you see? And not just it's red, what kind of red? Fire engine red, lipstick red, prostitute red, well, I don't know, whatever red it is. Flame red. Oh, is there a prostitute red? There is oh, now. Maybe del- we just invented delete that. <laughs> It's not a bad thing. I'm just thinking of lipstick. Um, So uh, use your senses and all your – what can your character see, smell, taste, touch and hear so that your reader can experience that. And uh, is that two? That's two. Finally, write every day, right? Now, 
I know that I I don't write every day, but I don't have to. I've published 17 books. So, But if you're starting out, my, you write every day. Mm-hmm. So Julia Cameron has a great book, uh, The Artist's Way. It has exercises in it and so forth. Get that. That was like a Bible for me when I first started. And I think she was saying uh, the three pages, write three pages every morning. It doesn't have, that have to mean anything. It could be about what you dreamt, um, just, just to get in the, in the habit of, of writing every day. Mm, terrific. Thank you so much for your time today, Anita. Really, really appreciate it. Um, I hope, and well, I've seen so much, you know, press around growing up Aboriginal in Australia. I hope it's a huge success and that it takes you know, new stories and new voices and all of those things to a whole range of new people. So best of luck with it. Well done for fitting everything in. And um, hopefully we'll talk to you again in another 200 episodes time. Thanks very much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Short Story Essentials, will show you the techniques to create your own 2,500 word short story. Created by Kathy Tasker, a fiction editor with more than 25 years' experience, this course has a very clear goal to help you write your own short story that you can be proud of, one that you can enter in short story competitions and share with your friends and family. We give you the blueprint to structure your short story, teach you vital techniques so that your characters come to life and give you the tools to bring your own ideas and creativity to the process. The course is split into seven modules and each is designed to guide you through each step of writing your full story. Then, once you've completed it, you can submit your story for personal feedback from your tutor. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash stories. Wow, cool. Anita, she's always great to talk to. She fits a lot in. Goodness me, I hope she sleeps. <laughs> she have, probably sleeps about as much as you do, Val. No, but you know what she does? She's a runner. Yes, she is. She is very fit and I think she only took up running a few years ago. Like, you know, she hasn't been a runner all her life, I don't think. I'm sorry no, if I got that wrong, She's She was running marathons, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, good her on her. I, yeah. I'm, I just think, you know, hats off to her for fitting all of that in and run marathons as well. Absolutely. Gosh. Amazing. I mean, really. I mean. All right. So what's happening with Al this week until we chat uh, again? Until we chat again, I, you know, we're just we're you know just in that ice age of term two, really, at this oh, stage. Yeah. So we're just going to go, we're just going to continue onwards and upwards, and we're going to forge ahead, and we're going to do all those things that those motivational, inspirational people do. That we, you know, I look at those hashtags sometimes, and I just think, really, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What, what hashtags? Oh, you what know, are you talking about? Oh, you know, there's all those inspo people on Instagram oh, yeah. and stuff, and I and I do and I. I think, wow, that's amazing, but I would rather be on the couch under my blanket reading a book. Oh, you mean like they're at the beach Any. and they're doing a yoga pose with one hand? Yeah, while they type with the other and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and juggle their it on their head. hashtag blessed. <laughs> hashtag so blessed. So blessed. Also hashtag so grateful. Yes. I mean, you know, I'm kind of exhausted, but anyway. That's, <laughs> so maybe I'm going to attempt that this week. I might try a little bit of hashtag inspo. Yeah, what I'll about try you? a one-handed handstand, yoga handstand. I'll see how no, I go. No, you just try eight hours sleep yeah, that's and a good go idea. from there. Yeah. 
<laughs> Hashtag so grateful. Yeah, exactly. All mm. right, awesome. Uh, I My mind is a blur and I don't know what I'm doing this week, so I'm sorry if I'm not more useful, everyone. <laughs> but where do we find you online, Al? Hashtag so blessed. Yes. Um, You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You will find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me when I'm awake at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, please do connect with us in the podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community, and we'd love to have you in there. And, of course, you can find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 